This is the Ethics Lab podcast, exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics. We all know that in, in environmental genetics or population genetics, diversity is key to the survival of the species. So now if we have to be diverse, how are we going to be diverse? And who will have a say in what that diversity will look like? The pace of developments in genetic editing over the past two years seems fast and accelerating. What are those developments, the tough choice decisions and accompanying infrastructure that are needed to support researchers, clinicians, ethics committee members, and our community? It may seem trite, but is the key to success here better listening, inclusion of voices, and honoring the need for diversity in the human genome itself? Our guests today discussing these issues are three international experts, Damon Hostin, Father Kevin Fitzgerald, and Michael Burgess. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We start our conversation today with Father Kevin Fitzgerald. And Kevin, could you introduce your work and interest to our audience? Sure. Thank you. It's great to be with you. My name is Kevin Fitzgerald. I am a Jesuit priest at Creighton University. I have the John A. Creighton chair, and my role is at the intersection of uh, science, medicine, and ethics. In particular, my own background, I have a PhD in molecular genetics and a PhD in bioethics, both from Georgetown University, where I had been for quite some time. And most of my work has been in trying to look at where cutting-edge biotechnology is going and then not just assess the sort of scientific challenges that arise, but also the ethical and social challenges that such development brings to the world, in particular those communities that don't always have as strong a voice in how that development occurs or what direction it goes. Kevin, can you offer us a story that is an example of the choices we are facing regarding gene editing? Back in the time when a certain global institution was trying to decide who should remain in a community and who should not, uh, many people went from the old world, Spain and Portugal, for instance, to the new world, South America. And in this case, there were some Sephardic Jews who were pushed out by this global institution called the Catholic Church. And they went to the new world to find freedom you know, from this oppression because they were not Catholic. And one of them happened to carry with him a gene. And that gene when combined with another copy of itself, created what was called Laron syndrome, L-A-R-O-N. And what Laron syndrome's results are is the person is born and doesn't really grow to what we would consider a normal height. And in fact, they don't really grow very tall at all, the tallest being about four and a half feet tall. And so they're very short. They're abnormally short. They can easily be identified in a community. And because of that, people with this particular genetic variation tended to move away from the cities and were more in the rural villages in Ecuador. Well, a scientist uh, went to try to discover 
what exactly the gene was and to see if there was something we couldn't do to help these poor people who have this terrible condition. And what he also discovered while trying to figure out what might work as a treatment was that, yes, he could identify the mutation and, yes, it was in what we call the human growth hormone system. So one of the receptors, so one of the antennae that's supposed to receive a signal wasn't working. And because it wasn't working, these people didn't grow normally. But he also discovered two other things. Because they don't grow normally, they also don't grow abnormally in terms of cancer. They don't get cancer. They don't die of cancer. There it is. We've solved it. We have cured cancer. Give everyone Laron syndrome. Now, fascinating when you ask people, would you want me to genetically engineer your children to have Laron syndrome so they'll never have to worry about getting cancer? Vast majority of people, when I've just posed that as a hypothetical, will say, of course not. And I'd say, why? Don't you think cancer is a bad thing? And oh, by the way, I'll throw in type 2 diabetes as a bonus because they won't get that either. And the interesting thing is, we who say we're all about healing and health and all this, this is within a context, right? You have to look like me, be like me, you know, make me feel comfortable around you. And then we'll worry about the cancer and the type 2 diabetes. So it's, it's, it is, the diversity of the human species is absolutely amazing. And again, as we find out more and more of these things, it's going to be really challenging for us to come to, I would believe, a much more honest and I would hope more healthy understanding of who we are. And just to add a little addendum to that, another thing that came out of this research is also some insight into a treatment that is given now to children in the United States who are projected to be abnormally short. And they're often given recombinant human growth hormone as a treatment. One of the things we now need to look into is, is that treatment, which is maybe making them a little bit taller, also then greatly increasing their risk of developing type 2 diabetes, and I don't know, maybe even cancer down the road. These are the complexities that what we are learning now and our technologies, which will allow us to intervene, are going to bring before us. Let's review the pace of developments in just the past two years. Science Magazine identifies every year in December its breakthroughs of the year. Its 2015 breakthrough of the year was the gene editing technique called CRISPR. In 2016, human embryonic genetic modification had been authorized in the United Kingdom for the first time. In 2017, a runner-up for science's 2017 breakthrough of the year was pinpoint gene editing or base editing. Think of this. More than 60,000 genetic aberrations have been linked to human diseases, and nearly 35,000 of them are caused by the tiniest of errors, meaning a change in just one DNA base at a specific point in the genome. Base editing, borrowing from CRISPR, can correct such point mutations not just in DNA but in RNA as well. A second runner-up in 2017 was a dramatic success in a small clinical trial. Researchers reported that they had saved the lives of babies born with a fatal 
inherited neuromuscular disease by adding a missing gene to their spinal neurons. If left untreated, the babies would have died by about age two. The trial also marked a broader milestone because the researchers delivered the new gene across the membrane that protects the brain and spinal cord from bloodborne pathogens and toxins. That feat could open the door to using gene therapy to treat other neurodegenerative diseases. Kevin Fitzgerald, I've been using this term CRISPR. Can you offer a picture of what that term means to our audience? This is what I like to use, and a lot of other people use this same sort of um, way of describing it. it. You know, it's a word processing program that you're used to on your computer, whether you use Word or WordPerfect or whatever it is. The idea is you're typing along and then you realize you've made a mistake. And you then say, oh, I've, I've got to go back and change that mistake. And it's very simple. You move your cursor over and you click on that and you hit the backspace or delete, whatever. And that letter goes away and you put in the right letter. And then you can even say, oh my goodness, I've misspelled that throughout the entire document. And so you can go to your find box and you can type in the misspelled word and replace it with the correct spelling. And you can do this for one letter. You can do this for a word. You can do this for a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph. That's the idea. Now, of course, I don't think we're quite to the point of the efficacy and the efficiency of our word processing programs, but the recent technological developments have given us a much better toolkit in terms of doing word processing in our genetics, in our genome. And that's, that's the thing that's interesting because when you go into a document and you make some changes, what you might not recognize are the fact that you have spelled the word line as Lane, L-A-N-E, throughout the whole document, you go in and say, oh, anytime you see Lane, change it to line. But that means any word that may have L-A-N-E in it also will get changed. So you're still being very precise. You're still being very efficient. But now you're getting things that you weren't intending to get as a result. We're going to have many, many, many different ways to try to do this word processing. It's not just this particular technology, CRISPR, but there are many variants of CRISPR. And then there are other technologies which also use different mechanisms for doing this word processing. So the question is, wow, now that we can, should we? Damon, for our audience, if you would, could you introduce them to who you are, some of the work that you do, and some of the, the work that you've done in your past that, that relates to our topic? Sure. Um, so I've been in genomics for about 20 years. Uh, started at Solera Genomics, working on the Drosophila and human genome uh, papers in science. Moved over to Actinium Pharmaceuticals, which was targeted cancer therapeutics. Uh, moved to the business side and then actually ran a molecular diagnostics laboratory uh, and then was involved in pharmaceutical services generating candidate drugs. From there, moved to the research side within healthcare and then progressed through strategy and now head up a Precision Medicine Alliance uh, of Catholic Health Initiatives and Dignity Health, uh, working on these forward-looking capabilities into our community setting. I'd like to ask each of you, are there other events that, that have occurred over the past couple of years that have caused you to sit back and go, 
wow, they've been uh, developments that have caused you to, to take notice, pay attention. I think what we're starting to see now is not so many completely revolutionary ways uh, of looking at things, but rather it's either a, a depth of information. So the microbiome story saying we should be considering other things as well as one's genome or the sequence of one's tumor. So that is one. The other is then to say, uh, how broadly and how quickly can this become applicable? So I have been stunned with the speed of the approvals of these therapeutics, not just because it's completely built upon a thorough understanding of the disease, which was requisite, but the techniques to make the therapeutics, make them safely, they're incredibly complex, deliver them to hospitals and do that well. And that coordination is very impressive and, and I believe is a capability in and of itself of advanced clinics, advanced therapeutic companies, all based upon techniques that in aggregate speed these. Now, where you place that capability is some of the biggest questions. Is there a convenient biology or do we look at complex biology and where does it go? But I have been stunned with the pace. What do you think has contributed to the ability? Better networks? The toolbox has become better. And we've alluded to it just by the nature of this podcast as one key tool that's evolved. But there are others. Standardization in cell culture. Standardization, looking at the way the FDA considers cellular therapeutics. There are so many pieces of this that have worked uh, for years upon years that are now borrowing from each other across fields. Regenerative medicine techniques borrowing from targeted uh, CAR-T therapeutics, and that allows for a standardized manufacturer to the uh, stringency of the FDA and other global regulatory agents to make this possible. Uh, there were times where we thought it was just so advanced you couldn't standardize it. And if you couldn't, you couldn't have a trial with it. And if you couldn't get evidence, it would never be approved. But yet these things are happening very, very quickly. And I think it's important. There's a lot of standing on shoulders of giants, uh, an incredible amount of expertise that goes into a singular dose. Father Kevin, what would be your response? What has occurred in the past couple of years that causes you to take notice? I think in as much as we are very much surprised and enthused about these new technologies that we discover and develop, such as CRISPR, we also, I think, need to be constantly reminded that with these new abilities will also come new surprises in terms of what is actually going on inside our very complex organismal reality. In other words, you know, we, we find out things all the time that in hindsight, they look pretty clear, but we didn't necessarily suspect. So one of the things, of course, was CRISPR was supposed to be so much better at doing these kinds of things in terms of precision and efficiency and all. And yet then some papers came out and said, well, well wait a minute, there may be these side effects, as we call them, which would be unintended consequences that we didn't anticipate. Damon, your thoughts? I just want to walk through a few things that we have learned, not too recently, but we've known 
that there is huge variation within human biology. Uh, ironically, that is dependent upon very few genetic changes within the 3.2 billion things in us, and much of it also has to do with epigenetics and others, but there is a huge variation. There is a spectrum within sexes, for example. Uh, it is not binary by any means, and understanding those slight gradations is understanding in some ways the totality of the human experience. It also means that there are different people walking around with different abilities, different propensities, and this concept of human variability and those unique contributions, I often think about when we talk about not cutting down rainforest, it's to preserve diversity or to understand diversity. We in the first world really are controlling HIV and AIDS. Part of the reason was my understanding that very simple biology, relatively to human, of a 9,000 base pair virus uh, versus a 3.2 billion base pair human, but their interactions are, are indeed complex. We learned an incredible amount from non-progressors, people that were HIV positive, but never developed AIDS. And so digging into what made them different led towards a whole other group of fusion blockade inhibitors that helped with that fight. And this story goes on and on about finding these non-responders, super-responders, or variants within the human condition or human variability. I would also say, just from an inclusion standpoint, much of what we've understood about human correlations is in white populations. And so when we look at the representation of humans across the globe into what we consider to be our correlations, Europeans, whites tend to be drastically overrepresented. So filling out that genetic diversity in these correlative studies is also very important. One of the triumphs of, of when in 2001 the human genome publications came out was really meant to show how similar we all are to each other. But then we get into the finer gradations of what does a small amount of variation actually mean, and it means quite a bit too. You know, I want to bring up something a little bit further out there. The journal Nature, uh, one of the most prestigious journals on earth, the back page is always dedicated to a science fiction story. And science fiction is great because it, of course, takes the human condition, puts it in an ethically perturbable laboratory in writing and fiction, and allows us to play with variables. So Twilight Zone, things like that, really have approached many of the same things the Greeks wrestled over. Uh, but here we are today. Nature very much on purpose plays with these concepts in a truly conceptual fashion on the back page as they start to show up within the journal themselves. So recently in the popular press, as well as uh, the guidelines around Down syndrome or fragile X screening, that the concept that there could be an eradication of certain diseases within populations. And that forces the concept, I think, of really getting people at the table to say, who is choosing these pathways? Are you, as a person in a society, going to have no choice of interacting with these technologies, or is it a choice? There's genetic segmentation based upon what we know, and then there's who do we choose to proactively change, 
and under what guise. So just a few thoughts there. And maybe as the most ad absurdum closer, uh, the entire concept of the X-Men, the X-Men are mutants and they are treated differently. And, you know, the social consciousness around human variability and what that means, no one ever said they weren't human, but they were mutants of humans and they were treated differently. And sci-fi has really done a very interesting job of playing with this. Now I want to see what the rest of humanity does with it for real. Kevin, these technologies, these conversations cause us to reflect on what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be normal? How might we reframe or relook at disease? Well, here again is an area where I think our rapid advance in biological knowledge and information, particularly genetic and genomic, really helps us because one of the things that I can say with uh, a good deal of uh, certainty, so maybe not 100%, but 99.999, and you can go out as far as you want, is that anyone you meet on the face of the earth has what we would call mutations in their genome. In other words, they have different sequences of those A, C, G, and Ts that lead to some difference in their physiology. So I always tell people, you know, just with the X-Men, I too am a mutant. I'm a melanocortin-1 receptor mutant. We call them redheads or gingers, right? And just like X-Men, we all have to have our superpower, right? So our superpower as redheads is that once we destroy our climate and cloud over the world, all the rest of you are going to die and we're going to survive because we can make vitamin D underground. Right? You all need the sun, and we, because we developed in that marvelous part of the world where you don't see the sun, called Ireland and Scotland, we, we have this superpower. Now, on the other hand, if we blow the ozone layer away, you're not going to see any redheads, because we can also create melanomas at the drop of a hat. So this is getting back to Damon's point about diversity. Right? And, and that is who we are. And in fact, it's been fascinating to me to watch over the course of these several decades that we've been talking about genetic engineering, the number of people who keep proposing, oh, we'll genetically engineer ourselves to be this or that, because that will be so much better and so much superior to what we were before. And I always think, you know, if we all genetically engineer to be ourselves the same, then all we're doing is setting ourselves up for the ultimate disaster of some pathogen coming along and saying, wow, they're all the same. I can kill every one of them. Because we all know that in, in environmental genetics or population genetics, diversity is key to the survival of the species. So now if we have to be diverse, how are we going to be diverse? And who will have a say in what that diversity will look like? So another question I always like to bring up, which I consider rather fundamental, is anyone who says we should get rid of these people or these human beings or these features. And I always say, oh, um, do you have those features? Oh, so you're not included in the ones who are being gotten rid of. So if anybody comes along and suggests we should get rid of X, I would say, fine, as long as you're included along with those people with X. And then you get a much different take on things. It's fascinating. That brings up my other 
big surprise, which reminded me of an event happened back in the 1970s when we first discovered the ability to even manipulate DNA. And through that discovery, the scientists got together at a place called Asilomar and had a big conference talking about, should we do this or should we not? And there were some really good conversations that occurred during that time. Well, I think this recent revolution in the technology also caused scientists and others to say, we need to talk about this. And there was a meeting held in December a couple of years ago in Washington, D.C. Chinese government sent people and people came from Europe and all these people got together. And one of the interesting comments that came out of it was, we need to do public engagement around these topics. Because if you can do word processing to this extent, you can literally change the theme of the story. You can change the outcome. You can change the characters in the story. You can change lots of different things. What changes should we make? How do we even know that if we don't start asking people who represent many different perspectives, which is a very challenging thing in and of itself. So interesting to me was the fact that everybody started to recognize the need for this broad, diverse public engagement. But since then, it really hasn't taken place because I think people are starting to realize that's not going to be easy to do. On the other hand, though, if we really are serious about trying to understand where we might go with this, I still think the insight that we need to do it still needs to be pursued. Given the importance of gaining public input on these technologies, we thought we would contact a colleague who has completed substantial work on how to do public engagement well. We caught Michael Burgess on vacation fly fishing somewhere in British Columbia, Canada. Apologies for the poor phone connection. So my name is Michael Burgess. I'm a professor and research chair in biomedical ethics at the W. Morris Young Center for Applied Ethics, which is located in the School of Public Health at the University of British Columbia. There are many challenges in getting good quality public input into technical policy questions, um, like those related to genomics or big data and funding of new technology for wide social benefits. So all of those are the kinds of areas that, that we do work in. And, and I want, though, to focus on three components of the, the many different ones we could focus on. And so the questions to me are, how can advice from the public, first of all, consider the diversity of interests and how to live together when we do not agree? How can advice from the public be adequately informed without the information selling the expert or stakeholder view to the public? And how can advice from the public avoid pushing people into agreement or consensus that conceals important differences? And it's those kind of questions that have really pushed us on um, our deliberative approach to public engagement. So our, our first deliberative engagement, and the one we've probably done the most of, or one of the ones we've done the most of, have to do with biobanks. So that's, we've had those deliberations in Canada, and particularly in British Columbia, at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, um, down in California, both uh, in uh, San Francisco and L.A., and also Western Australia and Tasmania, Australia. So we've had quite a, a range of international experiences doing deliberations in biobanks. What public do you engage? Like, how would you reach out to what group of people to engage in the conversation? So when we get to who participates in deliberation, we want to include a wide diversity of interests. It's not so much that the high-level values are held differently by people, but it's the trade-offs they're willing to make. And a lot of that often turns on 
how much people trust who's asking them to um, use their samples, uh, how much they trust the healthcare system, and that's influenced by their experiences. So what we're after is getting into the room people who have very different interests or perspectives because of the lives they've led. And so we, we look for um, demographic uh, markers, we call them, it could be age, so younger people think often differently than older people. It could be urban and rural. People who live in rural settings have different experiences of healthcare than those in urban settings. People with chronic disease or genetic disease or who have who are caregivers for people with those backgrounds may be different from those who haven't had those experiences. People who have children are different from people who haven't had children. And men and women experience healthcare differently. So we try to get a complex set of people in the room to reflect that diversity. And the other thing we often do is emphasize a difference in cultural perspective, but particularly indigenous perspectives, because people from um, First Nations or Indian background will have um, different experiences related to how much they trust the healthcare system and therefore how much they trust whether they allow access to their tissues. And their tissues can characterize their tribe or their community in ways that they don't necessarily want to happen. And so those are another group that we often have. So what we end up doing is um, either we're through a mail out, a large mail out of about 5,000, or using market panels that marketing companies have. We recruit people through these filters to get a diverse group of people in the room. And usually we're looking at between 25 and 30 people in a room. Of the deliberations that you've done around biobanks, what would be a couple of stories that that you found were just interesting or fascinating from the deliberations. Maybe it was something you didn't expect. Maybe it was just a, a story of how it was done. Maybe it just went well. Put our first engagement on biobanks together, and we just weren't sure this was going to work. And uh, we had our colleague from the Mayo Clinic in the audience watching the deliberation. And at the end of it, I think what was so shocking to us is how well it worked. People who had no background and clearly knew nothing about biobanks before they got our materials and came to the deliberation made coherent, useful recommendations regarding policy and biobanks. So the, the first shock, I think, and we continue to get people shocked. So we, get, we don't do deliberations if we don't have decision makers who want to have public input. And we get them to observe and sit quietly at the back of the room, which is hard for them. Um, and I think the other thing that happens here that's quite really interesting is that the people who are policymakers are so used to seeing publics in different settings who have strong stakeholders or doing um, blog sites where they're not sure they're hearing very informed or very reflective opinions. I think they're very surprised and they leave with a different sense of the relationship they can have with the public if they structure those experiences properly. What, what for you has been, you know, in your experience of doing these, what's an example of perhaps the best outcome you've experienced of probably walking into this with a very difficult issue, but feeling like you've walked out with pretty decent recommendations among a, a broad group of people? So, I mean, specifically in our biobanks, um, we've seen changes in policy, in governance, and in practice as a result of these. So let me quickly describe those. Shortly after the deliberation on biobanks we did in Vancouver, we did one in the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. And the Mayo Clinic is a very hierarchical place, so for it to be interested in engaging the public was quite interesting. So we drew on people from Rochester County, who was the group that, that uh, the hospital worked with, the healthcare system worked with, and we did a deliberation. And at the end of the deliberation, 
they strongly recommended that there be an advisory from the public that continues to be involved in making decisions about biobanks because new questions emerge, new opportunities to be able to identify come up. And so the questions change. And so the advice given at one point in time won't be relevant later. And they didn't want experts to continue and stakeholders to make those decisions without further public input. And sometimes maybe then identify the need for another deliberation. So they, people in Mayo, agreed and took the, many of the participants from the deliberation and put them on an advisory, made an advisory. And they advised not only on biobanks, but on personalized medicine and um, epidemiologic research. And the Mayo liked it. The Mayo system liked it so much that they've duplicated that system. So they now have public advisories at the Mayo in, in Arizona and Florida as well as Minnesota. In Western Australia, when they did this, they actually did use our model to engage stakeholders separately and then the public. But they were looking at the um, OECD guidelines on how to manage biorepositories or biobanks. And they thought they needed to revise it and to be more um, easy to implement, more practical, and that they wanted to do that in sensitivity to public values. So they did the deliberations, and then they revised and incorporated the OECD guidelines in collaboration on an ongoing basis with the people they did the deliberation with, and that became state policy. So that was a change in the policy and what were people, how people were supposed to approach this. So in another one, we, we call this a slightly different approach to biobanks, a bio um, library where you leave the biobanks owning their tissue and you find a way of indexing and accessing the tissues where they are. But a bio library did a deliberation, and, and during that deliberation, people said they wanted a certain level of expertise in who tells them about the biobank. And they said initially they wanted a doctor telling them about the biobank the first time they heard about it. And that was just not going to happen. It's not practical in the Canadian healthcare system. But they negotiated back and forth. And eventually they agreed that if they had someone who was a technician who knew more about a biobank than their physician would, that would be fine. So the bio library changed that practice. They didn't have to set policy. They just put in place technicians who could give people that information. And their accrual rate to people who agreed to allow their tissues to be used through the bio library increased and they they published that this was a statistically significant improvement in their their accrual rate because they followed the advice of the public so those are examples of how how we've seen changes in the governance in the policy and in the practice of biobanking kevin what is a key focus that needs to impact the work of researchers clinicians ethics committee members or executives given our discussion I think there's ample evidence, and it's actually been an area that more recently has received much more focus and interest, the idea that people do better in medical settings if they feel they're being listened to, if they feel their concerns are being heard, if they feel that how they are responding to their treatment is an important part of the overall care plan. And it makes perfect sense to us when you look again in the bigger picture. All of us respond better when, you know, we feel included, we feel engaged, we feel part of the process that is supposed to be leading us to uh, greater health and greater depth in our lives. So similarly, as we engage all these rapidly developing technologies, as we try to integrate this incredibly fast expanding body of knowledge that we're developed that we are accruing 
what needs to also be present are those voices of people and to hear from them how does this make them feel what are their concerns what are their hopes and goals and desires how can we integrate what they hope to achieve and accomplish and experience in their lives into how we integrate this technology into our healthcare and that runs everywhere from the scientists doing basic research in terms of saying how do you structure your research are we listening to the needs of society, the perspectives of society, the goals of society, or are we just saying, I'm just going to chase, you know, whatever I think I can do, or I just happen to like this project a lot and I'm going to do it regardless. Now, there has to be academic freedom and there's freedom of research and all, but there's also the goals of our whole biomedical research system. And last time I checked, that's to help people. So I think, again, we can have that discussion. I know it's frightening for some people because they're afraid that others are going to say, no, 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 don't do it that way. Do it my way. But the whole point is by engaging with everybody, there's also the opportunity to come up with ways of doing things that none of us would have thought up on our own. And that's the real richness of diversity. That's the real, I think, outcome that we want, regardless of where these technologies go whether they succeed or fail, ultimately the good would be a human society that was much more interactive and engaged, caring and loving, concerned for one another, and from that, really creating a much more rich and healthy community. Today we have heard about the present choices and impacts regarding gene editing, as well as a model of public input influencing the direction of these emerging technologies in genomics. Resources mentioned by our guests will be posted with this episode on our website at missiononline.net. Appreciation for our guests and listeners. Thanks, everyone. My name is Kevin Murphy, and this is Ethics Lab. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of the Ethics Lab podcast. Exploring the path from better knowledge to practical results in healthcare ethics, Ethics Lab was created by Kevin Murphy and Russell Keithline. Thanks for listening. Join us again. Oh,